Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us to see one another. Amen. Well, God created the world and the universe and everything in it outside of himself. It was an act of love. Everything reflected God, his love, his joy, his peace, his grace. Now, see, if God wanted to control and micromanage our whole life, he would have made us totally dependent upon him. Instead, he made us totally dependent on one another. Do you see the difference? If God wanted to control us, he would have become a giant vending machine. And every time we needed something, we would have to go to him and cry and beg and plead and pay whatever price before he would allow us to press J3 and watch it tumble down into the chute, whatever it is that we needed. But when I got up this morning, I didn't have to ask God for food or water or clothes or a job. I did have to negotiate with the church because they pay my salary. And I did have to negotiate with the stores in order to get some bread for breakfast and some gas for my car and all the other things I needed. See, it seems my life is in your hands. Oh, and the hands of all the people who sell the things that I need on a regular basis. I can ask God for them, but he's going to redirect me to you. God filled the world with everything we need, and he entrusted that we would create and grow and develop and manufacture things and also learn how to share and provide for one another. God even made sure that there was more than enough of everything, not just enough, but more than enough. That's grace, pure and simple. Now, every problem that humanity faces, well, it's responsible for because we are humanity. Now, that may be something we don't want to hear, but it's true. Humanity is its own worst enemy. We take that which is good and beautiful and plentiful, and we twist and we hoard it. We become either like the second grader who is crying and angry because his sister won't share her ice cream cone, or we become like that sister who won't share her ice cream cone. The world was not always divided into the rich and poor. Perhaps our lesson from Genesis, you know, the one about Cain and Abel, that might have been one of the very first incidents, or it may have just been the culmination of a lot of others. But you see, shortly after Adam and Eve left the garden, the world became divided between the haves and the have-nots. The biggest problem with being rich, and now whether you are rich in reality or just rich in your own mind, is that you think you can solve all your problems with your checkbook or your good looks or your charm or whatever it is that you are rich with. But the truly important challenges of life tend to be more about the heart and the soul. And no matter how rich you are, you, you can't solve those things. See, life is more about how to be happy, how to be loved, how to find meaning and purpose in life. Yeah, and it turns out you can't buy those things, no matter how rich you are. Now, there's always going to be a long line of people ready to offer you one thing after another so that you can try to be loved, you can try to be happy, you can try to find meaning, but you know King Solomon who says that he tried everything in the world at least once uh, he discovered that stuff is no substitute for God, no matter how much of it you have. So what do you want out of life? If you could stop the world and reorganize everything, what would you want it to look like for you? The rich man in our text runs into God's house, his expensive robes fluttering, his golden bling jangling. He's holding a large offering check up with the print very big so that everybody could see it. And he shouts loud enough for everybody to hear, I'm here, God. You can begin now. And by the way, yay me. I'm so glad that you didn't make me like that guy at the back of the church who's 
offering is pitiful, who's wearing hand-me-downs and who nobody likes because of who he is. It's obvious, God, that you and I have a very special relationship, which is why you made me as wonderful as I am. P.S. Could you get rid of that guy because he smells? Ever driven past the homeless standing on the street corner and said, there but for or by the grace of God go I? If you didn't say it out loud, did you think it? It's natural. It's not that we're glad that they're in the mess they're in. It's just that we're glad we're not in the mess they're in. Except what are we comparing? And why do we really think that we're better off? Way back in Luke 12, Jesus is telling some parables. And Peter stops him and says, So are you telling these just to us or to everyone? Uh, putting that in Texan. Are you telling it to y'all or all y'all? Um, the question is whether or not the disciples need to take this personally. Is Jesus pointing out something that they are doing? Or is it something that everyone is doing? Now, if we're telling God we're thankful, and we are thankful that we are not them, what is it that makes us better? Are we truly better off than them, whatever them is? Every time someone thinks they have to earn their salvation or prove to God that they are worthy of his mercy and his love and his attention, I know they didn't get that teaching from the Bible. It doesn't mean they didn't read the Bible. It just means they either didn't understand it or didn't accept it. And by the way, we're not just talking about John 3.16 or Ephesians 2.8 and 9 when it comes to being saved by grace. Uh, this verse, by the way, I got reminded of this week when it was in a devotion. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. That's out of St. Paul's letter to Pastor Titus. As he encourages Titus to recruit church leaders to spread the love of Jesus to the community because it really is good news. What Paul and the rest of the Bible says, if you listen with more than just your ears, is that God loves you. i got to say that again. God loves you. And God loves you not because, well, you have or have not, but because you're you, whatever you are. I was telling this to a friend, and he responded, well, that's easy for you to say because you're a pastor, and God loves pastors. I uh, read a verse to him to open his eyes. James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers because you know that we will be judged by God more strictly. See, God says those who claim authority or power or knowledge in the church are going to be held to a higher standard. God loves them, but there are no free passes just because of your job or how much money you have or your titles or connections because God knows that a pastor or any influential leader they can care for and nurture and love a lost soul. They can also crush a soul. When I was a kid, I wanted to be president and an astronaut and a pilot and a world explorer. The key word there is and. I wanted to be all of those things. What I really didn't understand, though, is the responsibility that all those jobs have and all the math and, well, you know, all the other things you have to do. See, I just wanted to fly the plane, live in the White House, go into space, and explore the world. Not be responsible for all the things that those people are responsible for. I wanted the title and the benefits, not the responsibility. 
We all practice our own version of health and wealth gospel, where we think we have what we have and are what we are and are not like them, whoever them are, because we deserve it. We've earned it. We really are better. And God, well, God is telling us that. But did we? And are we? And if we are, why are we better? And how are we better? And is it really because we are so wonderful and amazing? At the back of the church stood a man who couldn't even look up at the altar. His face was downcast. He felt he didn't belong there. His sin was so terrible. His life so messed up that he couldn't forgive himself. So he was sure that God couldn't forgive him. Or maybe it was that he had been told so many times by so many different people that he was worthless and, and sinful that he had actually come to believe it himself. So how much are you worth? I mean, seriously, think about that for just a second. How much do you think you are worth? And how did you come to that amount? The human body is currently worth about $10 million, according to Ocean. Now, it had to be adjusted for inflation because that original figure came from the 1980s. See, back in the 80s, OSHA had to figure out if it was worth it or not to put labels on dangerous things to keep people from getting hurt or killed. Now, the labels um, would save an estimated 4,750 lives a year. But it was going to cost $2.7 billion to put those labels on things. So through all sorts of calculations, they figured the average person was worth $3 million. And that's the amount that it would require businesses. They would have to pay an extra $300 per person to make it worth the chance that those workers might get injured or die on the job. So multiply that times the 4,750 and you come up with $14 billion and some change, uh, which suddenly meant putting labels on things was worth it because that's a lot more than the $2.7 billion it was going to cost to put the labels on. So at least OSHA says that you are worth $10 million. Oh, and you're also worth putting warning labels on stuff. By the way, if you want to know where to find that, that story's on PBS. Just look it up. To humble us a little, science says currently, as of last year, all the elements in our body yeah, worth less than a dollar. Ouch. But doctors say that we could raise as much as $24 million if we were willing to separately sell off all of our body parts to those who are desperate for them. Except then we wouldn't have a body, so I'm not sure what good that would do. You know, whenever you fill out a job application, it says, how much do you expect to get paid? Which is another way of just asking, what do you think you're worth? The Google News Feed is full of stories about the yachts, jets, and mansions that famous people own. Many of whom, by the way, actually believe that their worth is measured by all those toys. I've got a t-shirt that says, he who dies with the most toys still dies. When Jesus tells this parable, and it's possible the scene was being played out in front of them, and Jesus was just giving a play-by-play -play narration, he ends with the tax collector, the one everyone hates, the one everybody knows cheats, went home forgiven and at peace with God. Now, anyone taking a sip of coffee would have spurted out their nose. Those who were half asleep would have woken up and said, what did he say? The Pharisees would have started to pick up stones to throw at Jesus. But a few, the sinners who had nothing to offer God, the ones the church and everyone else had ignored and had made invisible, they would have said, thank you, and taken a deep breath, and then got back to worshiping God. 
For everyone, the rich, the poor, the lost, the found, this life comes down to something as simple as do you trust God? We live in an imperfect world. Sin's torn it apart, our sin, and the sin of everybody else that's ever lived. And we can start pointing fingers at everybody and never, you know, but eventually we have to deal with our own piece of this mess. And whether we think Jesus actually needed to die for what we've done and whether we actually need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb, all those metaphors that we throw around, it's all actually beside the point. Trusting God doesn't mean we fully understand everything or that we fully agree with everything. If we trust God, we get down on our knees or we stand facing the sun or we lay on our beds and we just say, hey, God, can we talk? And God is always willing to listen. We can stand before the altar and talk about how great we are and all the amazing stuff we've done and how much better we are than the guy on the street we passed on our way to church or how OSHA thinks we're worth at least 10 million. But doctors think we could be as worth as much as 24 million. That is always an option. Or we can discover our value set by a totally different standard than anything the world understands. A worth not based on how much or how far or how whatever we are. But instead what we do with a very simple gift of a promise and a handful of water on our forehead. When someone asks me how God treats people with mental illness or Alzheimer's or babies that died when they were two weeks old or people that are in a coma, it's rarely a rhetorical question. It's usually because somebody they love has Alzheimer's, is in a coma, lost a child before it could say mommy or daddy, let alone I believe in Jesus Christ. Or maybe, maybe they just, uh, they're not in their right mind. And their fear is that God doesn't love them. Because either them being dead or in a coma or not in their right mind, they can't do what they need to do in order to be saved anymore. And they get a little nervous when I start off by telling them that God treats those folks the same way that he treats us. And then I go on to say that God treats them the same way he treats the Pope and Billy Graham and Mother Teresa, St. Paul and Peter and all those rock stars and heroes and billionaires. We are all judged by a simple criteria. Do we trust God? You can use the word belief. I've got no problem with that. By the way, do you think you deserve the taste of fresh strawberries? Or the smell of pakaki in the morning? Or the sound of a rainstorm? Or the beautiful, beautiful grace of a neighbor bringing you chicken noodle soup when you're feeling under the weather? You don't, and neither do I. But you know what? It doesn't mean we don't enjoy them. Every single moment of them. And by the way, those are the kind of things that we tend to want to tell others. We, we, we want to share our experience. So it is with God's grace and mercy. See, when a baby is learning to eat solid food and you introduce a new taste, the mouth often shuts and the face squints tight and they turn away and their lips say no. And you just keep moving the spoon, trying to connect with the lips until enough of it gets on there that it makes contact and the baby gets a taste. And then comes the moment of truth. The baby either opens wide and says, more. 
or fights even harder to shut it out. To taste God's grace is to discover a mercy that we do not deserve and to know that we are loved not only for who we are, but in spite of who we are. It also helps us understand that those we struggle with, those we are afraid of, those who sometimes we say out loud that we are so thankful that we aren't like them. See, it turns out the rest of the world is just like us. Or we are like the rest of the world. And let's face it, that's a little scary. It's also why God gave us one another. Not to compare to, but to celebrate with. God can show himself as he really is only to real men. And that means not simply to men who are individually good, but to men who are united together in a body, loving one another, helping one another, showing him to one another. For that is what God meant humanity to be like. Like players in one band or organs in one body. Consequently, the one really adequate instrument for learning about God is the whole Christian community waiting for him together. That's from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. See, the real tragedy of today's text is it would have been so simple for the Pharisee. On his way out of church, oh, his expensive robes fluttering, his golden bling jangling, to have simply locked eyes with that guy in the last pew. And just for a second said, how you doing? See, I suppose the bad news is that you really aren't better than anybody else, no matter who you are. But the good news is that nobody else is better than you are. You really can't fully understand someone else because you can't live their life. But what Jesus wants us to realize is there can never really be any peace or joy or happiness for us until there is peace and joy and happiness for everybody else. And so he intertwines our lives with his. As together we discover the taste of fresh strawberries, the smell of pakaki in the morning, the sound of a rainstorm, the pure grace of a neighbor bringing his chicken noodle soup, and most importantly, a God who sees past what we made of ourselves and loves us anyway. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.